The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. This is the part of the show where we dive into the papers and find out what's going on with Jared Howland, public affairs consultant and former senior government advisor, and Amanda Brunker, writer of the upcoming show Curiosity, which is in the Viking Theatre this September for two weeks. Uh, I mean, the top story, Jared, has to be Sinead O'Connor this week, the tragic loss of this great Irish lady. And it is all over the papers today as well, a special tribute supplement in The Times, I see. I mean, it is an outpouring at this point. It is. uh, And I suppose that makes me uh, a little suspicious. Um, It doesn't have to be the top story, but you correctly say it is. And I think part of the coverage of her death is somewhat exploitative. Uh, media leads where it bleeds. Uh, the public conversation is never quite in sync with the media conversation. And obviously, uh, I've been aware of, she's about a year younger than me, aware of her you know, for decades. Hugely prominent person. When the songs were replayed, I, I recognised them. But I was never particularly in her ambit as an artist. Um, she was never really part of my life in the way that some people, it really was. She and her work and her songs are really important for them. Uh, and I recognise her extraordinary talent. The sound of the voice is simply mesmerising. The, the, the songs and the context of them, particularly where Ireland was in the 80s, the 90s, the noughties. Um, a very fine artist who made a great, great impact. Uh, but we should be self-aware enough to know in media that we're covering this for a purpose and part of that purpose is our own selfish interest. I mean, I was not expecting that answer, Jared, to be to be honest with you, because the sense I get is not that the papers are running this because we'll sell a lot of papers. I think they have captured the mood of the nation and exactly how people are feeling in terms of people want to talk about this and want to look back on this woman's very difficult life and the things she came through and what a source of strength she's been for so many people. Do you think that perhaps it's your own background in media that's making you get to this point of this realisation, this conclusion that there is a little bit of exploitation to this earlier than other people might be? Perhaps. And perhaps I'm just cynical. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's some parts of her life you wonder what's for her own sake too public, too much, too often. Um, we all have private lives and most of it decide, or because <coughs> nobody else is interested, uh, to keep most of what's private, private most of the time. Um, and, and I just wonder if there wasn't a relationship between Sinead and the public and her public and media o- over the years that was always in, in her own best interest. And I suppose it's not for me to say that. Um, but what I do recognise is an astonishing talented artist and historically an important figure in terms of her context and various issues at various mm. times. Well, Amanda, I know uh, for her, and you would know this as a writer, the sharing of your life is the, it's what you draw from. It's mm-hmm. completely where you, you can only write about what you know about. And she shared in a way, as you say, Jared, that others were unwilling to. And some of the attraction for her audience was that she made them feel okay. She was their champion, that she was okay to open up about these difficulties in her life. I understand 
you know, you had interactions with her over the years yourself. Ah, uh, yeah. Listen, she was she was kind of omnipresent uh, around the scene, and unfortunately, so was I. So we were bound to bump into each other over the, over the years. But I I kind of agree with Gerald there for because there were times when she. I remember time, unfortunately, means nothing to me anymore. I don't know whether things were two years or three years or six years ago, but there was a time when she was definitely quite unwell and she was taking to Twitter quite a lot and she was she was going on rants on Twitter. And I remember, I think, I'm nearly sure I was still with the Sunday World or the Herald at that stage. And I remember being quite upset that people kept reporting on what she was saying because it was bringing a bigger audience to somebody who was quite unwell and possibly wasn't being looked after at the time. And and it was like, it was like what, what Sinead said last mm-hmm. night. And it was like, on stop talking about this woman. Stop, stop printing what she was saying because clearly she was on well and there was a time. But people did feel connected and, and it is quite phenomenal because it has, it is a global story. Yes. It's not just in Ireland. And it was quite obvious that her, her music, her art, her vulnerability, her pain, um, resonated with so many people across the world. And she was a complex character and she wasn't always in good form. She wasn't always the most pleasant to meet sometimes. But then she had such generosity and such empathy for people. Mm. <clears throat> and I remember there was actually um, many years ago, back when I would have been on the party scene. And no, it was really you? Me? No. I know you might find that hard to believe. <laughs> um, I sound like I was on the party scene last night with my voice going. But uh, I remember it was back in the days when oh, it was really fun to be around Dublin. Colin Farrell had started to become a superstar. He was in his bad boy days and he'd be off making movies, walking red carpets with Britney Spears. And then he'd come back and he'd be partying with his old pals in Dublin. And I remember there was one great night in Reynard's. And it was at the time when we used to have paparazzi in Dublin. And um, how many no... are we talking? <laughs> Say that again. How many paparazzi are we talking? Um, like... There would have been about three. <laughs> three of them. Yeah, wow. three or four. A there gang. would have been. And they would have been parked outside Reynards and stuff. And I remember there was two taxis of us uh, were leaving Reynards. And there was other people, well-known people as well, who I'll leave out. But we were going back to Colin's uh, place in Ring's End. And I remember we stopped off kind of, I think it's on Bath Street or something like that. There was a spa and we were getting like treats and then we were going crisps and, you know, the usual. (laughs) And uh, and then, but they were like following us around and it was like on motorbikes and everything. And we went back to Colin's place and um, there was a note under the door and it was from Sinead O'Connor. And uh, she goes, you don't know me. She was so humble in the letter. Uh, you don't know me, um, but uh, I live across the road. I'm your neighbour. And uh, she says, I've been noticing a lot of photographers hanging around your house. And I just wanted to say that um, I've got your back. And if you never ever need to chat to anybody about, um, you know, the pressures of fame and stuff, I'm here mm. and I hope you be OK and mind yourself and, you know, just try and remember what's real. It's such a it's such a small kindness that uh, we're hearing about all the time, Jared. Mm. the stories that are coming out now of things that she was doing that nobody knew about except for Amanda Brunker and Colin <laughs> Farrell. And Colin, if you're listening, can you get in touch with uh, Do you still have the note? <laughs> WhatsApp the show, um, 87 uh, I wonder if you've got a story like this, text us in. If you have a Sinead story that, you know, she was there for you in a moment, 
But we can't forget, Jared, that she might be the first Irish person to be cancelled and then return from it. Like we're in, she was cancelled before cancellation mm. was a thing. thing. Mm. <laughs> well, in, in fact, writers uh, and artists have been cancelled repeatedly in Irish history throughout the 20th century. Um, and many of their work li- lived on and the people who cancelled them are, are long forgotten. But her cancellation, uh, which was uh, largely true, something that largely did happen, uh, is a fact. Her career took, uh, I suppose, in, in purely commercial terms, took a big hit, uh, particularly in the United States over tearing up that picture of, of the Pope. I can remember Frank Sinatra, for one, a very devout Catholic, as we know, um, I, I say in irony, um, <laughs> it's taken great offence uh, about that. And of course, uh, she had it right in a way that most of the rest of us didn't understand uh, for a long time. Um, this this week on my runs around the Ring of Kerry, I've been listening back to her book, Rememberings, which I have to say is a recommendation, mm. my recommendation for the week. If you can get the audiobook of that, her narration of it herself is quite something and just um, haunting to hear her version of events and how she sees mm. herself as having a before and after life yeah. before the tearing of the photo of the Pope. And how she really only returned to herself in 2020. And beautifully, the messages are coming in with stories of Sinead right now. Uh, this this texter says, I was walking from my bus and was passing the Savoy Cinema in O'Connell Street, Dublin, when I noticed Sinead beautifully dressed in a sari, talking to a man who was begging for help. She gave him a 50 euro note, which really moved me. Beautiful, inside and out. Certainly wasn't for any publicity, but out of pure compassion. And Rest a, in peace now, Sinead, from Pat. There's a historical context to her family that's relevant to the 1980s, and I'm the only one in this conversation who can remember the 1980s. Oh, I was there. Uh, I was as there. A, as a much younger person. <laughs> but uh, there, there was a divorce referendum. Um, was it 85 or 86? I forget now. I'm it was, not, it was, and, and, and it was 86, lost. Yep. It, it was lost. But one of the most prominent people in the divorce action campaign in, the, in those years was a man called Mr. John O'Connor, who was her father. And he was far better known than her because of that activism mm. for a very long time. So that context of her family in a very uh, you know, important part of political social history in the country, um, which would have been part of her childhood, I guess, um, is worth remembering as well. Well, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, we have to move on, but please do keep the texts coming in 53106. The second story I do want to get to this uh, week in, in this section of the show it surrounds violence on the streets of Dublin to me which is an old story 20, mm. 20 odd years I spent well I, I guess I had a sojourn to England for a time but 23 years ago when I first started living in Dublin I was aware that the streets were unsafe that I couldn't visit my girlfriend uh, at a certain time on a certain street uh, is this the oldest story that has just reached a tipping point this week, or has something <clears throat> changed, Amanda? I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that this attack on the American gentleman um, has been the tipping point. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that there has been a tipping point. It was very unfortunate um, that um, it had to be this particular gentleman who had to be attacked by allegedly young teenagers. Um, but I, I have. I'm a proud dub. I just need to put it out there. I'm a Northsider. I'm a very proud Northsider. Um, 
I defected to the south side. Uh, I don't think there is much crack over that side. That's another day story. But I've I've been around town since I was far too young. I grew up around North Inner City, hanging around. I would have been clubbing from the age of about 16, maybe even 15, out of an evening in places that I shouldn't be. But Dublin has always been hardcore. I suppose all cities are, to be honest. Um, but now there's just more people. There, it's, it's a bigger concentration. And unfortunately, Dublin, uh, despite what the Justice Minister says, Dublin is not safe. Uh, I always I always get up. I worry about if I'm driving over the north side to see my mum and I'm driving by, say, Christchurch, and I'm just looking at all these American tourists walking around and I'm just like going, oh, God, get out of here. You know, the place is... I don't is, think that's right or normal, though, Amanda. I say think that again? That, I don't think that's right or normal. But it's and fact. The accept, fact or not, it is an accepted fact. And whereas you've travelled the world, so have you, Jared, mm. As Pat Kenny said during the week on this very station, you go to the Louvre, nobody's dealing drugs outside it. You go to the Eiffel Tower, there isn't drug deals and injections taking place at the uh, Empire State Building. You go to the GPO... And we're accepting it, Amanda. Is there a certain, is she right? Is it just that there's been a blatant acceptance well, well, that Dublin is hardcore? Well, the difference between Paris and London, in Paris it all takes place around the peripheries. In Dublin it takes place in the centre. Oh, I don't Very doubt much. that it'll take place, Jared. But why do we accept that it will take place at these national monuments? And I'm not saying that we don't address why or how it's taking place. My question is, why do we accept it in these places where, as Amanda pointed out, there are all these tourists. Why is there, and there see, like there has to be someone top down who's saying we're OK with this, is there not? No, there's nobody saying we're OK with this. There's nobody doing anything much about it. Yeah, nobody's it's, putting. It's, it's rather a different uh, contention. Um, in relation to the city centre in Dublin, rather like in San Francisco, but unlike in Paris, some problems in some cities gravitate to the centre. In other cities, because of the way they're built and laid out, they gravitate towards the edges. <coughs> it's in the centre of, of our city uh, and, in, and in some other cities because of a combination of a couple of factors. There's been a lot of talk about the Gardaí, and I think a lot of that is fair, but there's been too little talk about Dublin City Council. Uh, because Dublin City Council has abandoned the North Inner City for years. I've lived in the North Inner City since about 1992. It's a tip. It's filthy. Uh, the, the group that measures littering in Ireland always gives the North Inner City a black spot every year, year in, year out, and, and nothing and nothing is, is done about it. And that's a contributory factor. There's some great people uh, living there. I mean... I, I just want to be clear. That mm. Well, know, I live not, there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing about it is the way the, the north inner city particularly, uh, because I think it is more intense in the north inner city than in the south inner city, um, is, is built. Uh, the, the lack of um, housing, the lack of community, the fact that O'Connell Street and its immediate surrounds <coughs> where these events, um, including the horrible abusive assault on Stephen Termini took place are, are streets where there are few, if any, living communities. That's profoundly different than Paris, for Amanda, example. Amanda, people have turned around this week and said this is just a policing issue, that if there it's were not. if there were Gardaí on the street, this wouldn't take place. Now, I have many friends who are mm. guards and they have told me how difficult it is to do their job, even to pursue somebody. But there is something there. There is something in the lack of actual uniforms 
on the streets. I mean, if we have had this ability to curb speeding by simply parking guard cars next to busy roads to get people to slow down, surely just presence, just walking the beat will do something. 100%. Listen, we need we need more bodies on the street and as a as a visible presence but unfortunately that's not the only thing that needs to be done like i mean there's like i walked i parked my car only 2 minutes away from here as i walked here the place was filthy from the car park and the walk from the car park there was two separate homeless people sleeping from my car now obviously as i drove into town i passed many more people sleeping in doorways and um, that is never acceptable now i i'm I'm smart enough to know that uh, people who are homeless uh, are going to be for a, comp- a whole range of reasons, um, not just because of the housing crisis. And we will talk about that later in the show. Um, but, like, I mean, it's it's just... And then there was a, a big group of gentlemen who definitely looked um, decidedly dodgy, and we'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so literally in the two minutes that I walked up here, it's kind of like, on oh, this place, unfortunately, is a bit of a mess. But we do need... Garda on the street and they're just not around. Somebody put up a post on Twitter there the other day and they drove from the top of Dame Street down Dame Street. They went across uh, down Westmoreland Street. They crossed the bridge and then they went down the Quays and the caption was where are the guards? And there were none. He literally drove the whole way down. But unfortunately there's there's a bigger issue. We need we need better education. We need more facilities. You can't expect there to be people everywhere and no facilities. There's no sports uh, facilities. W- there's no community centres. No, that's there's not true. There's a lot really? of facilities in the north inner city. And uh, this is a myth. I'm not saying there shouldn't be more. I'm not saying that more is needed. I recognise parts, particularly in the North Inner City, are very deprived, okay? But to say there's nothing is nonsense. But there's not enough. I there's too many people and there's but not don't enough start places with the con- for people Don't to start go. with the contention that if there were more facilities, this would be solved. Because that's, that's not... Well, I don't that's agree. There needs to be more resources. And, and by can't. the way, if, if people have children and anyone under... Is it 16 or 17 is legally a child? I yes. I believe that's correct, yeah. right? Has children who are misbehaving, the fundamental primary responsibility is in that home. But the Nobody's problem is you need to break you need to break the cycle. Unfortunately, there there are children who whose parents can't look after them. So then you're just kind of saying it needs to be the parents who looks after them. But at some point, broken people need help and you need to intervene and there needs to be more people who can help children who are in vulnerable situations who were just left to run the streets and then unfortunately they get into a life of crime because it is quite glamorous and we've all seen that the crime TV shows it is the you need at some point to intervene with vulnerable young people because it can't always be the parents who look after them. And I agree, they but should be responsible. it can't always be the state or somebody else or something but, else but or the lack of a facility or the need for another well, service that if mm. the intervention is made, it's going to sort something that fundamentally, ultimately, at the end, before the boot goes into somebody's face, is somebody's personal responsibility. But you can't just say, just leave it to the parents because unfortunately a lot I'm not of saying people don't have parents who can look after them. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that simplistic analysis about facilities, uh, about about help, about schemes, uh, misses the point. There is intergenerational dysfunction, uh, but a lot of, some of that at least has to be put down to personal responsibility. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, guys. Uh, Amanda Brunker. You can't wrap it up there. You can't do that. 
The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.